Hello and welcome back. I am Pastor David Palmer of Lower Three Runs Baptist Church in Martin, South Carolina, and this is the It's God's Word podcast. Today we're continuing in the book of James. We're starting the fifth chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12, so please join with me. I'm going to start by reading the first six verses of James chapter 5. Come now. You rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and the corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wagers of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. I'm going to stop right there for right now as we begin to look through these. This really continues the thought from last week. James is warning against these profiteers who were completely ignoring God, but it doesn't stop there. In the last chapter, he was condemning their godless planning, where, where he was condemning the misuse of their money. And if you remember, being rich wasn't the problem. The problem was the way in which they used their riches. And this is what we're talking about here. They have hoarded up their treasures. Uh, they have selfishly used others. And they are about to reap their just rewards. And as we'll see, everything will soon be for naught, as James warns them. Because what we see here and what James is admonishing and condemning here is they, they have not treated fairly those who work for them. They have used their laborers. They have underpaid them. Uh, they have built wealth on the backs of those who work for them without properly taking care of them, frauding them out of what they are, are justly due uh, um, and committing all kinds of, of atrocities against them. Uh, but the, the cries of the oppressed have been heard, James says. The Lord certainly knows their plight. In Luke chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, we see this. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Ah, oh, God, he will avenge his elect, those who cry out to him. He hears. He hears them. He knows the plight. And in verses 5 and 6, we actually see a pretty harsh accusation against these, these people that James is condemning. Because in verse 6 says, You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Um, yeah, now, how exactly can, this is a harsh accusation, so how exactly can James claim that they have murdered people? Uh, well, some of them may have literally done that, 
But there's also something else in play here. He's likely thinking of the very practical result of their actions against the poor, how they cheat them of their land, they take away gainful employment, they cheat them out of wages that they are rightfully due, simply put, by their hands, the poor end up starving to death. Sirach, who is a Jewish scribe from about 200 B.C., makes this same connection that I'm, that I'm saying right now. Here's what he says. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed blood. And and I really believe that's what James is speaking of here. He he's taking he's, they they have taken away the means of these people to support themselves and their families to feed themselves and their families. And and he has uh, uh, in effect they have in effect caused the death of so many of these whom they have misused, mistreated, and cheated. So, but these oppressors, that they've had their day. They've had their good things. The good they have in this life will be as good as it gets for them. Um, they truly are uh, uh, um, as James is pointing out here, they truly have, quote unquote, lived their best life now. Uh, and and let me just say, if now, I don't care how good your life is here on this earth, if now is the best that, it's get, that it gets, uh, you're hopeless, pitiful, we're in sad shape. I look forward to something much, much better than anything that could ever happen in the here and now. I look forward to my best life in eternity with Jesus Christ, not here on this earth. So, But, but these people, they're living their best life now. And what they have in this life is going to be as good as it gets for them. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 25, this is the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Actually, I don't think this is a parable because Jesus uses actual names. There is no other example anywhere in Scripture of actual names being used in a parable. So I think this is a, a, a true account. Uh, because this differs in that regard from from any other parables we see anywhere in Scripture. But anyway, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 25. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received 
your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Now, this really tells us something about the rich man's character, which fits right in line to to the people we see James talking about. The rich man's suffering in hell. He sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man doesn't feel any sorrow for what he has done, how he has treated this Lazarus. Uh, there's no regret. There's no hint of repentance. In fact, he still looks at Lazarus as a mere servant. Because look at what he asks Abraham. He said, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Put Lazarus to work for me. Have him see to my needs. He's still, there's no repentance. There's no sorrow. He just simply sees Lazarus as an expendable servant. And this is exactly the kind of people James is talking about. Let's move on to verse 7. Because now James begins to speak to the oppressed. And understand that God hears them and they will be delivered. He says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So verses 7 and 8, we see James speaking to the oppressed. We know that God hears them, and they will be delivered. Uh, God's not going to forget about them. Psalm 9, 9 says, And the Lord also will be a refuge to the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. What a comfort that is. What a beautiful promise. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus knows the plight of the oppressed. He knows what his children are going through. And they will be delivered. But patience is in order, just as we saw back in the first chapter. God works on his time. And we may not see, the oppressed may not see deliverance in this lifetime on this earth. They may not see it until they enter into eternal rest with Jesus Christ. But whatever the case, deliverance will happen. And they will be rewarded handsomely. Patience simply is in order. And in verse 8, well, in verse 8 he says be patient. And then we move on to verse 9. Well, before we do that, yeah, he says to be patient. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And we must be ready when the Lord returns. First Thessalonians 2.19 says, For what is our hope or joy? Or crown of rejoicing, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? That is our joy. 
the hope and the promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever we may be going through today, um, whatever may be happening, certainly right now in this time in history, our eyes are being opened more and more to the, uh, the plight of, of oppressed people. And whatever may be happening, whatever may be going on, we can have joy. We can have joy in the hope and the promise of the coming of the Lord for those who are his children. But we must be ready when he returns. But here's what happens so often. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Unfortunately, it's human nature, and when things go wrong, we tend to grumble against and blame others for our misery. We always want to look somewhere to place to blame. We can trace this all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's human nature. Adam had a specific directive from God not to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He and Eve ate that fruit anyway. When God came to Adam, Adam tried to find some place to place the blame. He's like, hey, this woman that you gave me, she fed it to me. Oh, it's not my fault. You gave me this woman and she corrupted me. It's almost like placing the blame on the woman and back on God all at the same time. And then Eve says, well, wait a minute. No, the, the serpent tricked me. So she's placing the blame on somebody else. But that never flies with God. But, but humans tend to do that. Blaming others tends to be easier than owning our share of the responsibility. But it's both destructive and sinful. So before you judge others for their shortcomings, remember that Christ the judge, will come to evaluate each and every one of this. We see this in the 25th chapter of Matthew, particularly verses 31 through 46, um, where Jesus speaking uh, of the end times. He says all the nations will be gathered before him. Uh, he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep. Um, and this is this is a judgment that's being spoken of um, when we verse 37 in Matthew 25 he says then the righteous will answer him saying Lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you and the king will answer and say to them assuredly I say to you Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, and the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and he did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So he's judging us. And 
what we see here is these 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 self-centered people who who have no concern for others other than what they can get out of them. Um, that's not a mark of being a Christian. Um, that's not how a true Christian would act, and those people typically. Um, the, we, we would assume are not true believers in Christ and they are destined for hell unless they place their faith in Christ and repent. He's not going to let others get away with shifting the blame. He, he, he has never done that. Uh, it, we can't shift the blame to others. We can't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. And if we're to be ready when Christ returns, we can't be wasting time arguing with one another. He said, do not grumble against one another. And we can't we can't be wasting time doing that. We need to be working on his behalf. And if we are grumbling, we are not working. The judge is standing at the door and you can rest assured that he knows everything that's going on inside. To verses 10 and 11, he says, my brethren... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, with Job as the primary example of suffering, we see that the end reward was far greater than the suffering. The same is true for any of God's children who suffer oppression and persecution. While we may be allowed to suffer for a while, there are always limits to the suffering, and there is always an end to it, even if we cannot see these things. We see in Job that God places limits on our suffering. Job was never able to see these, but we see the behind-the-scenes look here in the book of Job's. Job, look at Job chapter 1, verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God said, okay, you can go this far, but no farther. God placed limits on it. Job chapter 2, verse 6, he allowed Satan to go a little bit farther, but still placed a limit. Job 2, 6, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. You can go this far, but no farther. Rest assured that in our suffering, God always placed limits. Job wasn't aware of those limits, and we won't be either. But it's important to remember that God is in control, and nothing happens that he does not permit. And he also understands our suffering, because he went through far more than we'll ever experience. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Uh, he's aware, he understands, and in every instance, as we look at Job, God had to allow Satan to afflict Job and his family. And we need to also remember that God always has a reason. Even if we don't know it, he has a reason. The Lord is indeed compassionate and merciful. Now, verse 12, a lot of people have found this verse kind of difficult in this context, but he says, Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and you no be no, lest you fall into judgment. 
But above all, I don't think James is saying that this is more important than what he was speaking of. I think this is just a literary phrase meant to close out a thought, um, kind of like saying lastly or finally. Uh, I, and I also believe there's a connection to the previous verses, as might not be obvious at first, but I believe there is a connection to the previous verses, as James is essentially admonishing us to be trustworthy. Let your yes be yes and you no know be no. You don't need to go beyond that. Let your word mean something. Be trustworthy. Be the kind of person that when you say something, people trust it to be so. Uh, in echoing, echoing Matthew 5.37, James is simply calling for straightforward, honest, and plain speech. Matthew 5.37 says this, Jesus says, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. See, to speak otherwise is to invite God's judgment, but, a, you know, a, um, but to be trustworthy. Simple speech is all it takes. You don't have to be elaborate. In trying to justify things, if you're a trustworthy person, your yes is yes, your no is no, and people already know that that they can they can trust you, and you don't have to justify yourself and elaborate on things and and talk more than is prudent, honestly. And also, a trustworthy person will not oppress others, such as those people that James is condemning here in this passage we've been looking at. A trustworthy person, a believer, has gone a long way toward being ready for the return of his Lord. But first and foremost, you have to be a believer. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, let me start over again. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is Romans 10, 9. Jesus has done all the work on the cross. He has paid for your sins. He asks only that you come to him and trust him as your Savior, your Lord, or resurrected living Savior, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us even today. There's not a sin that's too great. There's not a person too wicked that Jesus has not already died to save and has risen to give eternal life. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I pray earnestly that that. This will pierce the hearts of anyone out there who does not know Jesus, that you'll be drawn to him in a powerful way, and that you'll give your life over to him. And Father, and 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 and, and I, I just pray also that for those of us that are Christians, that we would treat others fairly. That we will conduct our business plainly. Simply, in a trustworthy manner, we will treat others fairly. Um, and we will not be an oppressor. And that we will understand the plight of the oppressed. And that we will reach out to them. And that if you're feeling oppressed, if, you, if, if you're feeling... No, no, if you're feeling that, know, know that there's an end to it. Know that there are limits to it. Know that Christ understands your suffering. That's what I want to leave you with today. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for each and every person that has joined in with us today. I, I pray, 
Lord, that you just change them from the inside out, draw them close to you, that those who don't know you will come to know you, that today is the day of salvation. Lord, that we will reach out to those who are oppressed, that we will find comfort in the knowledge that you know our plight and hear our pleas and that there is a deliverance and there is a limit. And we just thank you so much for all that you do, all that you have done, for it is in the very precious and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And I thank you for being with us and invite you to come back next week and to invite others to join us as well. Have a great day and God bless.